Alright, well you can open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 2. As you're turning there, I just have a few announcements for you. Um, first of all, flocks or small groups will meet this Friday night at the Reed's home. It's more of a, a northern area flock uh, will meet. Um, also, we, we have something that didn't get to the bulletin. Valentine's Day banquet, couples only, except for nursing babies, that's okay. Uh, Friday night, February 13th, so you might want to maybe arrange your babysitters for that day. It's going to be a, a great time. I think we're planning a Mexican restaurant. Uh, I think that'd be good. Also, next Sunday, it'll be our annual meeting. I encourage you to stay. We'll just break quickly after church to get everybody, and then we'll have an annual meeting. We're preparing that packet this week and have been preparing it. And just to communicate to you where we are as a church financially, vision-wise, it'd be a great time for you to, to come and see where we are as a church. So... Well, with those things, we are in here, Second Peter chapter 2. Our text this morning is going to begin in, in verse 10. This is really one of the most bleakest passages, I would say, in all of the Bible. When Jesus Christ died upon the cross, He did so to purchase for Himself a church without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. And yet, in the course of time, false teachers have arisen to stain and defile that pure and spotless church. And we see Peter's description in verses 10-22 through 22 is not pretty. He's going to describe the sin of these false teachers in all their gory details. For 13 verses, Peter will go on and on and on and on about the ways in which these false teachers have engaged themselves in sinful activities. And, and what makes it so bad, what makes it so bleak is the fact that these men are in the church I mean, when you hear words, names like Adolf Hitler and John Wayne Gacy and Jeffrey Dahmer, those kind of names, we, we cringe at their wickedness, and rightly so. But suppose those men were in the church. We would cower even more. And when you see this morning of the sin of the people, the leaders in these churches, it will cause you to cower It's really, it's really an awful passage. It's been a passage since we've been going through for Second Peter that I've dreaded to come to, um, because it is so hard. It is so so. In fact, even today we're going to rush through it. I'm going to preach 13 verses today, which is bordering on a record for me. Um, I think I'll be able to get through it all. We we trust that that we will. Um, but it is. I'm grabbing that many because it is the thought. I mean, I mean it, it, it's difficult to know even where to end. I put out my weekly word this week. You all know about where, where should I stop or where could I stop? And I, I didn't know, so we're just going to do everything this week just to, to keep it all together. And it is really the core of Second Peter is about false teachers arising in the church. It's the reason why Peter wrote his whole epistle is, is chapter 2. So it's really the crux of, of what he was saying. But in this chapter, we see people in positions of leadership in the church who are wicked and, and pulling people away from the truth with their deception and their lies. And, and don't think that this is something that only happened during Peter's day. False teachers are alive and well in the church today. You need to be aware of them. You need to flee from them. In many ways, the words of Second Peter 2 today are, are really applicable far beyond even the official roles of teaching. You can apply his words to anyone in the church who is in a position of influence. 
Be that an elder, be that a deacon, be that a Sunday school teacher, be that a committee member, be that a youth group helper, be that just somebody with lots of influence of other people, anyone with influence who professes a godly life, but yet lives another. It's a false teacher, false leader, leading people astray. Peter first introduced these people in verses 1 through 3, which we looked at three weeks ago, I guess it has been now. Peter described them as, as false teachers who rose up just like the false prophets did in the past. He described them as those who have introduced destructive heresies. He describes them as those who have denied the Master who bought them. Though they have maligned the truth. They have exploited many with their false words. Peter gives the assurance then at the end of verse 3 that their judgment from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. He says, God will deal with them. Yeah, it may look like God's not dealing with them now, but their destruction isn't idle. God will destroy them. He will bring them to an end. And he explains, then giving some historical proofs in verses 4-9, through that God knows what He's doing. He will punish the wicked who lead others astray. Just as He punished angels who sinned, just as He punished the ancient world, just as He punished Sodom and Gomorrah, He will punish these false teachers who lead people astray. Unless you despair, Peter did bring some grace in there about how God preserved Noah through wickedness and God preserved Lot as well in the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. So God will preserve His church. As the summary verse comes in our last section, verse 9, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and He knows how to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. God will protect the godly and He will bring the unrighteous to their deserved end. Well, Peter picks up the thoughts now here in chapter 2, verse 10, by describing these false teachers. His emphasis isn't so much upon their destruction as it was in verses 4 through 9, though that's not out of the question. I mean, it comes up in verse 12, it comes up in verse 17, it comes up in verse 20 about how they will be destroyed. But his emphasis here is upon their wickedness, upon their sin that they were involved in, much like he talked about in the first two verses of Chapter 2. But, but this onslaught here is much broader and it's much deeper than it was in the first three verses. In fact, as I went through the, these verses, I counted 30 different sinful characteristics of these false teachers. I could easily have had a 30-point outline this morning, but we only have five points. So we'll get to that in a minute. Well, let's read our passage to catch the flow of thought. Peter says, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority are those he's going to keep. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against, the Lord, against them before the Lord, but these, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will, in the destruction of those creatures, also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of those who do wrong. They count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions as they carouse with you, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, Forsaken the right way, they've gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. 
But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to its own vomit and a sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. And you, you get finished with that and you feel, feel a bit dirty. But it is what uh, is inspired in the Word. We need to walk through it before we actually dig into our text, you need to realize that verse 10 starts in the middle of a sentence. It actually starts at the end of a sentence, which began in verse 4. Talking about how God knows how to rescue the godly from temptation to keep the unrighteous under punishment. And who can He keep under punishment? Especially those who indulge the flesh and despise authority. See, what God did in the past, He will do in the future. Especially... You've got you to feel that word. It's especially to those who indulge the flesh and to despise authority. These words are alarming because it says that God's judging and condemning hand is especially upon false leaders in the church. Now to be sure, God has bound angels for future judgment. We read about that in verse 4. And God has destroyed the ancient world. We read about that in verse 5. And God has destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. We read about that in verse 6. But according to verse 10, His judgment is especially upon those in the church who indulge the flesh and despise authority. See, it's especially upon those who have heard the truth and know the truth under the umbrella of the truth and then lead others astray in the, the truth. And you say, why is it especially upon these people? Well, it's because those in the church have a greater revelation. I mean, think about where we are today. We have a greater revelation than those did in, in Noah's day, those did in the day of Sodom and Gomorrah. We, we know of the Messiah today. And, and we know of, of the Spirit in all its fullness. And, and we know the Gospel of Christ. And we have every, every resource available to us. Right? Everything pertaining to life and godliness is there for ours in Christ. And we have that revelation. And with that greater revelation comes a greater responsibility. So if we turn our back upon that revelation, the consequence is worse. Especially to those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. And especially to the false teachers described here in chapter 2. Verse 10 and following. Now as I sought to outline this passage, I said I could have outlined it 30 different points. Um, it's difficult to outline it because Peter isn't linear in his thought. He didn't say, hey, let me tell you about the character of these, these false teachers and, and, and now let's talk about their theology, these false teachers, and then, then let me tell you about their way with people and then let me tell you about their lusts. 
He doesn't do that. Rather, He just spaghettis all of their sin together. He meanders around. Sometimes He takes their sin and illustrates it. He says they are like Balaam. They are like clouds and springs. They are like dogs and pigs. There are times when He shows the results of their sin, resulting in condemnation, black darkness, destruction, suffering wrong. There are times when He shows the methods of their seduction, enticing unstable souls. So it's difficult to categorize everything neatly. I've tried my best. I have five points. But even some of these points, they're overlapping a little bit, but I do think they summarize well the sin of these false teachers. Five ways in which these false teachers sin in the church. Now, before I actually even start with the first one, let me, let me just say that, that every false teacher, every false influence in the church isn't, isn't all these things all the time but they do paint a good flavor for us of what their wickedness is is like. First of all, they despise authority. They despise authority. Pick this phrase up from the middle of verse 10 where it says, especially those who indulge the flesh with its corrupt desires, and there it is, they despise authority. They hate authority. They don't understand authority. They are an authority unto themselves because false teachers in the church are in the church for themselves. They aren't part of the team. They are like the athlete who's on the team only to advance his own cause. Selfish athletes, interested only in their own statistics. They want the glory. They want the reward. So they clash with the coach when they don't get the ball. And they clash with teammates when they don't receive the pass. And they complain against the coach when they don't pay, play. And there's an infectious symptom. There's an infectious disease that infiltrates the team because of that. Because it's not about the team. It's about them and so also with false teachers. It's about themselves because, he says here, they are daring and self-willed. It means that they are in it for their own pleasures. They are in it for themselves. They're governed by their own desires and their own pleasures. They don't submit themselves to the authorities around them because they are rule unto themselves. And in this way, they come to despise the authority in the church. According to Titus 1.7, this ought not to be a characteristic of an elder in a church because a church isn't about a person. A church is a body that God has put together to grow together. And as false teachers are self-willed, they're in it for themselves, they destroy the unity of the body. False teachers are like the false prophets of old who rule on their own authority, Jeremiah 5.31. But not only do false teachers resist authority, they don't understand authority as well. They're not fearful of authority. Look, look there in verse 10, in the middle of it, starting the next sentence, daring. They do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Now there's some discussion about exactly what this is because it's... it's um, Angelic majesties, how one translation says it, there can be angelic glories, really what it is. Is this good angels? Is it bad angels? There's discussion about this. I, I think it's talking about wicked angels, wicked demons, that these false teachers rush headlong into encounters with demonic beings without any fear. Right? The daring person is the guy who can ride his bike and jump over three garbage cans, right? Because he doesn't fear the consequence is going to happen on his shin if he falls. And the daring false teacher is the one who delves right into the demonic world without any fear whatsoever. Willingly rebuke demons without the slightest apprehension. And Jesus, Peter explains why it's wrong in verse 11. He says, Angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. 
But false teachers do. False teachers bring a reviling judgment against these demons before the Lord because they don't understand the authority and power of the spiritual world. That it's far beyond us. Jude gives us a great illustration of this in Jude verse 9. It took place at the time of Moses. Moses died on Mount Nebo. He died alone. He saw the promised land, wasn't permitted to go in. Apparently, we find out in Jude 9, there was a dispute about his body. Michael, the archangel, and, and Satan himself were disputing about this body. And Michael kept his proper distance because he respected the power of Satan. And Jude says, Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment. Michael the archangel didn't feel right to pronounce a railing judgment against the devil. And I would contend that Michael the archangel is a pretty powerful being, far more powerful than us. In fact, that's what verse 11 says. They are greater in might and power. He didn't bring a reviling judgment against the devil. Other angels don't bring reviling judgments against other demons. But Michael merely said to Satan, he said, the Lord rebuke you. I give it to the Lord. And yet, how many of you have seen preachers on television binding Satan or casting demons out of people as if it's nothing? They don't realize the power of these beings. They have no reason to tread so boldly as many do in their presence. That's one reason why I think false teachers are predominant in the charismatic movement. Because they're not afraid of the demonic world like they ought to be. And they're into sensationalism. And the the demonic world, it just kind of comes up. False teachers despise authority. They don't understand authority. Well, let's look at second. False teachers indulge the flesh. And again, I pick this up from verse 10, the phraseology, especially those who indulge the flesh. And we see this really in verses 12 to 14 of just how they are fleshly people in it for their own fleshly desires. In fact, I would even argue this is perhaps the most predominant characteristic of false teachers. They're fleshly. They're driven by their own lusts rather than by the Spirit of God which they lack. Beginning in verse 12, Peter compares them to unreasoning animals born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed. By and large, animals are creatures of instinct. They're driven by their lust. They're driven by their will to survive. Farm cats think nothing of killing mice so they can eat the mice. Lions think nothing of killing wildebeest so they can eat and live. They're driven by their sexual lust. They will fight fiercely for the right to reproduce because they're living for themselves. And so also false teachers are creatures of instinct driven by their own lust. Whatever they they want. It's what's best for them that matters most. They don't live for others. They live for themselves. I think about animals and some animals do help us and serve us, but they must be domesticated before they serve us. The only way that dogs serve us is by training them to serve us. The only way horses serve us is by breaking them so they're willing to set the cowboy upon the back of the horse. Dogs and horses have been trained in this way and they actually do it out of self-preservation because they know if they fail they will be punished for it. So also false teachers, they're not seeking to serve the church because it's natural for them. Rather, they understand that any service they give that looks like service is actually good for them. They haven't learned the heart of self-sacrifice for the good of others. They're just like animals, just in it for themselves. Verse 12 continues how 
they are reviling where they have no knowledge. Now some, this dips up into their view of authority. Verse 10, this is where the outline is a little bit messy, but I do think it talks about how they don't know what's going on in this life. Just like animals. I mean, your dog, your cat you have at home, fundamentally doesn't really know what's going on in life. I mean, they haven't read the newspaper. They don't know the inauguration is coming. And so likewise, these people have, have no real knowledge and understanding what's taking place in the spiritual realm. They don't understand the power of the angelic world. They revile without knowledge. And their end is not pretty, as verse 12 says. These false teachers will, in the destruction of those animals, also be destroyed. Suffering wrong is the wages of doing wrong, and false teachers will be destroyed. It's the point of verses 4 through 9, which we looked at last week. And like animals, they will perish. I mean, you think about it. The animal world has been created to serve and help the human world. You see that in the garden. Often the animals help us by dying, right? We raise chickens so we can eat them. We raise cows so we can eat them and use their skin to cover our furniture. Such is the fate of false teachers. They too will be destroyed like animals who serve us. Because they'll be destroyed because they're driven by their own lusts and they'll reap what they have sown. They have sown to their flesh and they will reap the corruption that the flesh yields. Well, they're indulging in the flesh continues on in verse 13. It says that they counted a pleasure to revel in the daytime. Listen, even unsaved people understand that wickedness is best kept in the darkness and hidden. I mean, when do bars flourish? They don't flourish at 10 o'clock in the morning. When they flourish, they flourish after the sun goes down. They, they normally flourish after everyone's off the street. Midnight's when they start picking it up. You know, two o'clock in the morning when everyone else is sleeping, when there's cover of darkness, no one can see what's going on, that's when the bars flourish. That's when sin flourishes. Same in Bible times. Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5, 7, those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But these false teachers are so wicked that they, that they work their wickedness in the daytime, in the broad daylight for all to see. It's a sign of a seared conscience, actually. They've become so used to sin that they sin in public. Sin with all to see. Peter continues in verse 13, talking about how they're driven by their lust. They're stained in blemishes, reveling in their deceptions. They carouse with you. The, the church, I said earlier, was created to be spotless and blameless, but these men come in to pollute it. They walk into the house with muddy shoes on, ignoring mom's sign that says, wipe your feet before entering. They spill Kool-Aid on the carpet. They let the rotten bananas sit on the carpet on the counter for weeks, letting it smell, aromate the kitchen, right? They rejoice in their sin. To them, wickedness is like a sport. If they revel in their deceptions, they, they love to engage in it. They love to talk about their triumphs afterwards. And what makes it so awful is that these people are in the church. It says in verse 13 that they carouse with you. Some translations say they feast with you. Probably better translation, but whatever it means, it means that they are right there with you. They are in the church, close proximity. It's not that they're out there somewhere. No, they're in here with us, engaging in wickedness in the very place where things ought not to be. The church ought to be a light and a model for the world I mean, I think one of the things that Paul mourned over in the church in Corinth was a man cohabitating with his father's wife. Remember that, 1 Corinthians 5. 
And he said, actually, they were boasting about how open-minded they were. They were probably boasting, as, as Jude said, turning the grace of our God into licentiousness. Oh, it's been forgiven by grace. It's covered by grace. It's just fine. Look at us. And Paul rebuked them strongly. He said, your boasting is not good. He says, don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Get that man out. Paul, Peter even says, I've delivered him. Paul says, I've delivered him over to Satan. So he might be taught not to blaspheme. Now, to be sure, the church is comprised of sinners. It's not that we are perfectly righteous people here. Listen, but we are redeemed sinners who've come here. We've been washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. And though we stumble in many ways, our hearts hate our sin rather than reveling and rejoicing in our sin like these false teachers do. We, we hate it in ourselves, we hate it in the assembly. And in fact, that's why we love the cross of Christ, right? Because it's there that our sin became righteousness, right? It's, it's there that, that, that God takes our sin upon Christ and gives us the righteousness of Christ. As we believe, our sins are wiped away and we're cleansed. And that's what gives the happiness and joy, that we might sing about how we were dead in our transgressions and sin, how we were without God, without hope in this world, but it's grace irresistible that drew us and opened our eyes we might see the light of the Gospel, the glory of Christ. We rejoice in the cross. We boast in the cross. Why? Because we hate our sin. And we know that our sin was taken away there. We can purge it from us. But these false teachers rejoice in their sin. But we ought to mourn over our sin. The false teachers boast of their sin. It's a big difference there. It's because they're driven by their lusts. And verse 14 continues to describe their lusts. They have eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin. Think that G- Peter had Jesus' words here in mind? When um, Jesus said, if you look on a woman and lust for her in your heart, you've committed adultery in your heart. And these men think nothing of committing this sin. And it's not a one-time occurrence with these men. Have you ever seen men who have eyes full of adultery? Just kind of looking up and down and looking at women. It's an awful sight. And these people were in the church. Never ceasing, always on their heart, always on their mind, always in their eyes. And their sin, their lust isn't merely kept to themselves. They exploit others. Let me look at verse 14. They entice unstable souls. They have a heart trained in greed. They are accursed children. They want a following. They're driven by the lust of having a following. And so they search out the weakest, most unstable people in the church and entice them to follow after them. Beware the man who gains a following of weak people. Beware that man. Now, we will see that later as we get down to verse 17 more, but they are deceiving by their lusts. They want a following, so they do that. They have a heart trained in greed. They are well practiced in in the art of taking money from others. Beware the man who is always asking for money. They are cursed children. It's talking here about their fate. It is secure. They will face the curse of God. Why? Because they indulge the flesh without constraint. Third characteristic of false teachers come in verse 15 and 16. They have gone astray. I picked this right up there. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Then he used the imagery here of Balaam. Having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, Restrain the madness of the prophet. 
See, what's so shameful about these false teachers is that they had the right way right in front of them. They had every opportunity to walk in the right way. Instead, they turned away. They turned aside to the wrong way. And look here. They have the right way and they forsook that way and instead they went astray. And we shall see later, it's their active choice. They chose to rebel against the Lord, choosing the wrong way rather than the right way. Peter brings up then the imagery of Balaam. Now, his story is told in Numbers 22 through 24. You go back and read that. We don't have time, obviously, to do that. But from all we can tell, it, it appears that he knew something about the Lord. He was uh, a prophet of... He, he wasn't a prophet of Yahweh wasn't called that, but he was someone who was, who was in connection with the Lord God. Uh, he had a, a reputation known far and wide as one who was able to invoke God's blessing and curse. When he pronounced a blessing on people, people were blessed. When he pronounced a curse on people, people were cursed. But what's interesting of Balaam, he wasn't with the people of God. It's not like he was with Israel. Rather, he was up in, in northern upper Mesopotamia among pagan people. So it may have been that he was just a diviner who was using the name of God as his cover. That's just the God that he chose. Anyway, Balaam's story is told in Numbers 22-24 through 24, during the time when they were wandering in the wilderness. The Balak, king of Moab, was especially um, observant. He saw what the people of Israel that came out of Egypt was doing. He saw they defeated Sihon, king of the Amorites, in the wilderness, and he was worried that Israel was going to come and conquer them because Israel was so much bigger and so much stronger than them. He couldn't fight them militarily, and so he sought to fight them spiritually by summoning this Balak fellow to come and curse the people of God because he knew that if Balaam would curse the people of God, that they would be cursed. And so he went and requested Balaam to come, and of course, with the request came a financial incentive. There was a fees for divination, that's what it was called. That's what Balaam charged. Balak's messengers initially came to Balaam, made his request, said, here are your fees, why don't you come with us? Balaam said, Numbers 22, verse 8, spend the night here and I will bring word back to you as the Lord may speak to me. He says, let me pray over it tonight. Right there's his error. He should have known if he were a true prophet of God, he would have known he wasn't to go with them. But it was the lure of money they caused him to think about it for a little bit. To his credit, he made the right decision, sent them away and said, I'm not, I'm not coming. Now, you can read between the lines, maybe he was bartering with these people, I'm not sure. Because Balak was persistent and sent more men to summon Balaam and, and with more money, listen to Balak's plea, he said, let nothing I beg you hinder you from coming to me, for indeed I will honor you richly and I will do whatever you say to me. Please come then, curse this people for me. And again, Balaam made the same error. He told these guys, okay, please stay here tonight and I will find out what else the Lord will speak to me. So he says, I'm going to pray about it. He had no reason to pray about it. If he had been a true prophet, he'd have said, no, go away. I'm not for hire. But the lure of money was too great and he ended up going with them. And God was not pleased, and really that identifies Balaam or error, Balaam's error. He was a slave to money. He loved the wages of unrighteousness, what verse 15 says. 
He went with these men to pronounce a curse upon Israel. Now, to his credit, again, he didn't pronounce a curse. He pronounced a blessing upon Israel only because God constrained him so. But Peter did say that he received a rebuke. You remember the story? He was riding along this trustworthy donkey and riding along the path. The, the angel of the Lord appeared in front of this donkey, armor, sword in hand, caused the donkey to deviate from the path and he walked into the field. Maybe this field even was muddy and sloppy and Balaam didn't like that. He whipped the donkey and got him back on. And, and a little bit while later, they were walking through this vineyard with walls on, on either side and then the same angel of the Lord appeared and, and the, the donkey bristled a little bit and pushed Balaam against the wall and so his foot you know, banged against the wall between he and his donkey and did not like that and he struck the donkey again. And yet a third time they're going along and the angel of the Lord appears to Balaam again a third time and, and uh, appears to the donkey again. This time the donkey had nowhere to go and so he just sat down. Balaam was angry and struck the donkey again. At that point, the Lord rebuked Balaam out of the mouth of the donkey who said, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And amazingly, Balaam considered, continued the conversation. He said, Because you've made a mockery of me. If there had been a sword in my hand, I would have killed you by now. And then you know, this whole sword motif. The, the angel of the Lord had a sword. And now Balaam said, If I had a sword, I would have killed you. The donkey replied, Am I not your donkey in which you've ridden all your life to this day? Have I ever been accustomed to do so to you? And Balaam said, No. And then the Lord opened his eyes to see the angel of the Lord standing in the way with a drawn sword in his hand. And the angel of the Lord rebuked Balaam. He received rebuke. Now, we don't have time to tell everything that took place in the life of Balaam. Only we know this end was ugly. He died when Israel conquered Midian. He died by a sword. He was involved in the, the plague, um, immorality. There was. Numbers 31 speaks about that. Just awful. But he, Balaam was just like many false teachers. He indulged the flesh, he had gone astray. Because there are many false teachers or preachers, preachers for hire. If you have the goods, they'll deliver the message. Because false teachers love the ways of unrighteousness. But a, a true prophet and a true teacher isn't for hire. They ought to be the Lord's messenger, preaching the word in season, out of season, reproving, rebuking, exhorting with great patience and instruction, regardless of whether or not there's a financial reward at the end of the day. It's a true teacher. Anyone who will follow the money trail has deviated from the right way and has gone astray from the Lord's path. False teachers despise authority, indulge the flesh, have gone astray. Fourthly, they are empty talkers. Verses 17 through 19. Peter says, They are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Now the imagery here might be lost on us in the land of moisture. I mean, we are right now, Mark, I was reading in the paper, because, Mark, you're praying. You're praying hard for your snow removal business. The, the rain, the snow is just coming down. We are on pace for a record winter. Unbelievable. We get 30 inches of rainfall every year. Maybe this year it's a lot more. We don't have any water shortage in the Midwest. In fact, our problem is floods. But for Israel, it's a different story. For the most part, they live in a desert. And springs and clouds are lifelines. Without water in Israel, they die. So think about yourself. You're out in the desert, desperate need of water, right? You're hiking along. You say, I know there's a spring up the well where I, up, up the ways where I can get some water and get refreshed. And so you get there and you find it without water. What happens? 
you're disappointed. You've placed your hope in the spring and the spring didn't come through. Or imagine yourself a farmer or a rural citizen. You, you see a cloud coming which might bring water and it comes closer and closer, right? You hope, hey, it's going to rain and then this storm whips up and this wind blows the cloud away. So there's no rain that comes and your hopes are dashed. In both cases, you're hoping for water to keep you alive, keep your crops alive, which will feed you and then you get nothing. Well, so also are false teachers. You come to them desperately looking for life. You say, teach me, lead me, guide me. And in the end, they are empty. You get nothing. Well, they're speaking for sure, but they're speaking nothing because that's what verse 18 says. They're speaking out arrogant words of vanity. Vanity there means emptiness. They're speaking empty words. They're speaking meaningless words. They don't have the words of life. Rather seductive, seducing words. Just try some time to listen to a liberal preacher on the internet or read some of the stuff. They just talk and talk and talk and there's nothing there. That's what he's talking about. Speaking of arrogant words of vanity, but these though have, a, have an agenda. They are enticing by fleshly desires. They're enticing by sensuality. And who are they enticing? Here we come back again. They're enticing those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. They're enticing by fleshly desires. I think this is the health, wealth, prosperity thing exactly, right? You want to be rich? Well, follow my counsel. There's your desire, right? We have a desire to be rich. And so they're just feeding that fuel and they're feeding that passion. You want to live a healthy life? Well, follow my advice and you'll get it. You want to live a life of ease? Then follow, follow my life because we all want that. And preachers then are ready to pander to that flesh. You get sucked away into their skin in their schemes and who gets sucked away it's those who are weak those who barely escape I think what he's talking about here are those who have, have barely just out of the world they got one foot in the church they got one church foot in the world and they're, they're just barely they're unstable they're easily swayable they're just they're just coming out they're investigating this Christianity thing and they're persuaded away see it's, it's not the strong who follow false teachers it's the weak who follow false teachers when a lion looks to attack a herd of wildebeests, it doesn't say, hmm, I'm, gonna, I'm up for a challenge today. I'm going for the fastest, sleekest wildebeest out there. Is he saying that? He's not. He's saying, I'm going to look for the weakest and the slowest. So that I can have my I'm going to look for the fattest. <laughs> the wildebeest kind of plots along because they've been eating too much field hay or whatever. And so do false teachers go after the weak of the flock. The mature see their words. The mature see right through them. And they may promise freedom, but they are in fact slaves of corruption. That's what it says. Look at verse 19. Promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. I mean, they may promise freedom, but it's the strong who can see through it. So they're not free at all. It's like a man in prison telling you how to enjoy a day in the park. They can't enjoy a day in the park because they're incarcerated. Why would you listen to them to learn what a day in the park is like? You know why you'd listen to them? Because you're weak and they're strong and you like to hear stories and follow after them. And I just say even right here is a great point of application. You want to you stray, you want to keep yourself strong away from the influence of these false teachers? Well, grow in grace. Grow and be strong. Know your Bibles. Trust the Lord. Walk in His ways, then you'll be strong and you won't be enticed to follow away after these people. 
We just have empty words. There's nothing to it. Well, my last point this morning comes point number five. I think I'm doing pretty well. I'm, we've gone through a bunch of verses here, ten verses so far. Zipping through, but I do have some comments at the end that we will address here. Verse 20. False teachers are worse than before. Really, it is, it, verse 20 and following is really the, um, where the, the entire text really becomes clear as it describes the history of these false teachers. So he's been describing their sin and everything going on, what, what they are, but now he's going to talk about a little bit of the history about them. He says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and are overcome... The last state has become worse for them than the first, for it would be better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment handed on to them. Look what it says here. These false teachers have a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Jesus is on their lips. They're in the church. They're professing Christian teachers. They aren't psychic readers. They aren't Hindu gurus. They aren't New Age thinkers. They are people who teach about Jesus. And their knowledge of Jesus has helped them. Look at what it says. After they have escaped the defilements of the world by the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they've escaped, through the, they've escaped the defilements of the world. They have cleaned up their lives. They have escaped some of the sin of the, the former world because they've got into the church scene and have been sucked into the morality of the church. But... As verse 20 says, their change is only temporary because soon they are again entangled in them and are overcome. But at some point, they showed signs of life. And for the last ten verses, we see how they have gone back. They've despised authority. They've indulged the flesh. They've gone astray. They've become empty talkers. And going back, here's, here's the thing, is that they're worse than before. It says at the end of verse 20, that the last state has become worse for them than at first. It says that the state they're in now is worse than the state where they were in before they heard anything about Jesus at all. Better to be a Hindu in India and not hearing about Jesus than to be a false teacher in the church awaiting your condemnation. And verse 21 clarifies the issue because he says it would have been better them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn away from the holy commandment and hand unto them. See, they've been exposed to the truth. They've seen the right way. They've been around the truth, been around the people of God, and they have rejected the truth. They've turned from the holy commandment. They've turned from the Scriptures. They've turned from the Gospel of Christ. And now it's worse for them than it was before. Now this whole thought about becoming worse than the first state based upon what you know now it's not a new thought. In fact, it's all throughout the New Testament. Mostly it comes out of the mouth of Jesus. Jesus said this more than anybody, more than Paul, Peter, Luke. Jesus is the one who said it. When Judas betrayed Jesus, after being first-hand witness for three years to his life and teaching, Jesus said it would have been good for that man if he had not been born. Better not to have been born than to be a Judas. It's better to be in ignorance or die than it is to be in knowledge and reject it. When Jesus walked through the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, He was performing many miracles in those cities. In fact, these, these cities in the northern Galilee, three parts, three, three cities, kind of formed a small triangle just a few miles from each other. He's performing most of His miracles in these cities, in these 
cities were hard against them. They didn't repent of their wickedness. And listen how Jesus spoke of their condemnation. He says, Woe to you, Chorazin. This is Matthew 11:21 and following. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, cities. Because if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, these wicked cities like Los Angeles and um, Las Vegas, coastal cities full of sin and wickedness, Amsterdam or whatever, if the miracles had occurred in Tyre and Sidon, which occurred in you, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Nevertheless, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon in the day of judgment than for you. Well, why is it more tolerable for them than for us? Is because we've seen, even though their wickedness may be externally worse, arguably, than Chorazin and Bethsaida's, they, they've received the knowledge and seen and rejected it. And then Jesus spoke against Capernaum, and you, Capernaum, will not be exalted to heaven, will you? No, you will descend to Hades. For if the miracles had occurred in Sodom, which occurred in you, it would have remained to this day. Unbelievable. Sodom, we looked at Sodom last week, right? Lot and Sodom, the wickedness that abounded. Jesus said, if I would have taken my miracles to Sodom in that day, they would have repented. Now there's whole discussions there about the sovereignty of God and His his will, he chose not to do that, and that's fine. But so speaks the culpability of those who see the miracles of Christ. He says, Nevertheless, I tell you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom in the day of judgment than for you, because better to be ignorant than to know the truth and reject it. On another occasion, Jesus had an encounter with the Pharisees, who said he was casting out demons by Beelzebub. In that context, Jesus spoke about how you, you can blaspheme the Son of Man, but if you blaspheme the Spirit, there's no forgiveness for you. And you say, what does that mean? Well, I think it's right there in the context about Jesus performing miracles. And they say, it's, it's, it's satanic. You're, you're taking the clear work of God, calling it satanic. And I think what it is, you've seen this clear manifestation of Jesus, and then you've flipped it around and said it's a whole satanic thing. And... Jesus said, that sin is so bad it's not ever going to be forgiven. In that same context, Jesus talked about how the unclean spirit goes out of a man. So a man, think about a man. He's demon-possessed, got an unclean spirit. Somehow, this demon leaves him. And it says, it passes through the wilderness seeking a place of rest, thinking the grass is greener on the other side, right? Finding this place of rest and it can't find any. And then this demon says, I will return to my house from which I came. And it it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. So in some sense, maybe this man had a demon come out of him and changed his life and got some things in order, but the demon found it swept in order. He says, I'm going to go back there. But the demon goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there. And the last state of that man has become worse than the first. And the idea is the same. I mean, it's, it's bad to have one demon, but to get that demon out and to know something of righteousness and living clean and then having seven or eight, eight come back in more, it's far worse to be there to reject the truth than to not know the truth at all. The writer of Hebrews says it this way, anyone who set aside the light of law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. You set aside the law of Moses, you die without mercy to two or three witnesses. And then it says, Hebrews 10.29, how much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. How much severe punishment do you think he will receive? See, it's one thing to turn away from Moses. It's another thing to turn away from Christ. 
and, and all His glory. And, and to need, see and know of the, the sacrifice of Jesus. And to turn them away, that's far worse. And these false teachers had a knowledge of Jesus, but they turned away from it. They turned to return to their cesspool, and Jesus said they await a worse judgment than ever before. And He says in verse 22, It has happened to them according to the true proverb. This is a true proverb because it comes from Proverbs 26, verse 11. A dog returns to its own vomit. And then another common proverb of the day says, A sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. He talks here about dogs and hogs. In the days of Peter, the days of the apostles, dogs weren't man's best friend. They were mutts. They just kind of walked around, scrounged and rummaged around the city. In the days of the apostles, pigs weren't too high on the animal list either. The lowest of animals, Peter describes these false teachers like dogs returning to their own vomit. Now, I've never seen a dog return to his own vomit. Okay, I have witnessed a cat though. All right, now this is the only time I get to tell this story in church. Okay, this this is gross, but it's gross. I mean, that's what verse 22 is. All right, so we're in California with my in-laws, and my in-laws have this cat. And uh, late one night, everyone went to bed. Grandma and Grandpa went to bed. We put all the kids to bed. Yvonne and I are just kind of staying up, playing our computers, watching TV, reading. I, I, I don't know what we're doing. And we're sitting there, and all of a sudden, comes this awful sound. And at first, it was like this growling. <coughs> and we didn't, I didn't know what it was. I was like, whoa, whoa what's that? And they heard this coughing. <coughs> and then it's like someone was gagging. <coughs> I didn't know what it was. Uh, so, so we turn around, we look, and we see this cat in the middle of the family room having these, these convulsions like that. And I, I didn't grow up in a home that had animals. I'm not, I'm not a pet lover. Sorry to you pet lovers. It's not. It's okay. I'm not. So i like, what's wrong with this cat? <laughs> I've never seen this before. This cat is convulsing. And Yvonne has probably seen this before. It took a throw rug and put it right underneath the cat. And sure enough, just in a ping pong ball size wad of stuff. It was right on this carpet, this throw rug. Well, needless to say, Yvonne and I went to bed soon after that event. <laughs> and that's why we don't have pets in the Brandon household. But we could have cleaned it up, but we figured it's Grandma Lola's cat, right? And, and grandparents don't have to change the diapers of the ch- their grandchildren, right? And so likewise, nor do guests have to clean up from the household cat. So we didn't. So we went to bed and we kind of chuckled and laughed in our bed a little bit and talked about how, well, Grandma Lola's going to have to clean that up and shows you how we're not the ultimate servants in any sense or manner. And, and then we got up the next day and talked with Grandma and told her a little bit what happened. And she said, no, I, I didn't see that. I didn't, where, where was that? And we pointed to the spot and it's gone. The cat licked up its own vomit, cleaned it up. Is that gross? You know what? The verse is gross. The text is gross. Talking with my family about this last night, SR, you're back there. You've seen a dog look up his vomit, huh? SR, he said, how many of you have seen dogs look up their own vomit? Okay. <laughs> I'm like, I, I saw a cat. So anyway, dog said he was visiting a friend and this dog was sick and vomited up all over the floor. Let me just... That's why we don't have pets. <laughs> okay? And began to lick up all this vomit. SR said it's pretty disgusting. 
But that's the point we're supposed to feel. These false teachers have escaped the corruption. Right? There's been this like corruption in them and they've escaped it. They vomited it up. And for a season it was no longer part of them. But then they returned to their former practices. This time in full knowledge of knowing what was going on. It's like they returned to their vomit. And Peter tells another proverb here about the sow. It's just a common saying, you know, like Ben, ben Franklin's saying, you know, stitch in time stays, saves nine, right? And the penny saved is penny earned. This was a common saying around those days. A sow after washing returns to wallowing in the mire. In other words, the sow that was once cleansed from the filth that covered him all on the outside, then when set free, jumps right back into the mud and the muck. Because he loves the mud and the muck. And so the natural question of this verse comes this, were these false teachers saved? Did they lose their salvation? I say, no, they weren't saved. They never lost their salvation. Now to be sure, it says, verse 20, they came to a knowledge of Christ. Very specific kind of knowledge. is a knowledge of a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But the, the verse 20 speaks nothing of faith. Speaks nothing of trust. Nothing of submission. Speaks only about something they knew in their head. They knew about Jesus' sacrifice. Now, these false teachers, to be sure, experienced a change in their life. But their change was all external. No evidence here that they were changed by nature. The Proverbs that Peter quotes are good examples of this. The dog that vomited is still a dog. The pig that was cleansed is still a pig. The dog returns to the scene of the crime and the pig loves the mud. And so also, when given opportunity, when these false teachers figure, oh, I can still get away with this and still be a teacher in the church, they willingly get involved and engage themselves in those things. So also, these false teachers never experienced a new birth. They weren't changed. Never changed by God. Only their external morality changed. And so ends chapter 2. Descriptions of the false teachers is terrible. They despise authority. They indulge the flesh. They've gone astray. They're empty talkers and they're worse than before. Now, before I close my message, I do want to step back a little bit and think about this passage, especially as it relates to Second Peter chapter 2. These men knew the truth, escaped the defilements of the world, progressed their knowledge to the point where they became teachers in the church. Listen, you don't just become a teacher off the street. There, there were some they were around and they became a teacher and a leader and influence in the church. But now, they've gone back in these things of the world, entangled in them and overcome, turned away from the way of righteousness, governed by their flesh, denied the Master who bought them. And to make matters worse, it's not just they've engaged themselves in the sin, but they've engaged themselves in the sin and are still around the church. They are doing great damage to the church. They secretly introduce destructive heresies. They carouse with you. They entice the unstable souls. They promise freedom. They exploit others. And their example in their life is terrible. As Jesus said, a, a disciple is good enough. He's just like his teacher. And so they're training people to be like them, indulging the flesh, having eyes full of adultery, having a heart trained in greed, self-willed, like unreasoning animals, speaking arrogantly, being stains and blemishes, being slaves of corruption, and lots of questions flow from this. Just want to cause us to think about a few things. Why do these people taste righteousness, truth, and then deny it and turn away from it? Why is it that these teachers come into the church, these people come into the church and experience the glories of the church and then turn away? I think there's a simple answer for that. It's lusts. It's their own desires, their own heart, their own passion. They've never given themselves to Christ. They've kept their own desires. They've kept their own passions. You know, I think it's interesting. False theology 
never, I don't think it ever comes about because people study the Bible and then come to a conclusion from the Bible. Rather, it always comes about because there's a change in their lifestyle and then to justify their lifestyle, they change their theology. That's how it is. I knew someone in college and um, wasn't in contact with this person for 15, 20 years almost I was in college. Found out recently that she is a lesbian. And um, she used to be in the church. And I also found out then that she's going to a liberal church. Ah. You change your lifestyle, then your theology follows. That's how it always works. And that's how these people then became false. Is that They come in, they like it, but they keep their lifestyle, they change their theology to sway people away. Why do they hang around? Why do they hang around to pull others around? Why do they hang around to influence others? I think Satan has them as a tool in their hand, in his hand, because Satan, if anything, wants to destroy the church. So Satan will use anybody, anything, tempt. Say, hey, you can be a teacher in the church and still live this lie. I mean, think about the, the big-name preachers who are living these lies behind them. But they got the big church, and Peter, Satan knows that you build them up, you build this big empire, and then you crash the leader, and it's going to devastate the church. And that's what he's hoping for. Now this question, what was their fatal flaw? What was their fatal flaw? I think the fatal flaw has to do with the theme of 2 Peter. What's the theme of 2 Peter? You remember? Let's just say it again. The theme of 2 Peter is? Know and grow, right? You need to know Christ and grow in godliness. And I think that the problem with these people, these men, is they didn't grow in godliness. Back in chapter 1, verse 3, we see that His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. Right, that God has given us everything pertaining to life and godliness. Right? We believe in Him. We trust in Him. We have everything that we need. We don't need to go off here looking for all these other things. And then Peter says, Since you have everything, verse 5-7, through seven, applying all diligence in your faith, supply moral excellence and knowledge and self-control and perseverance and godliness and brotherly kindness and love. Right? You've got everything for you. Everything is in Christ Jesus, so therefore apply diligence in believing and trusting in Him and grow in godliness. And in fact, as verse 10 says of chapter 1, as we practice these things, God's calling and election of us is sure. The entrance, verse 11, into the eternal kingdom comes that way. As, As you believe and trust in Christ, as He works in you to grow in godliness, that's how we enter the kingdom, that's how we are are there. And that's how we make certain that God has chosen us and called us. The evidence of God's grace in our life is surefire evidence that we've been called and saved by Him. And the flip side is true as well. If we aren't growing in godliness, like these false teachers who morally changed a bit and then drifted down, we have no assurance we're believers at all. None. If we're not growing in godliness. In the case of false teachers, their lives that give them away. Right? I mean, we went through all of Second Peter, and there was, as I've said to you before, there's hardly anything about their teaching. It's all about their life. Their life gives them away. They weren't growing. Therefore, we conclude they weren't saved. And based upon Peter's theme in the epistle, 
You can see at the top of your sermon notes there, my sermon title today is what? They didn't grow. And that was their problem. They didn't grow. Well, a few weeks ago, a few months ago, remember I handed out to you plants? How are your plants doing? Some of you are good, some of you are... Well, you know, in, in our house we have several plants, and we have one plant that's doing really well. And um, remember the plants? I put this a little Second Peter Know and Grow just to cause you to really think about this. Well, this plant's not doing very well, all right? This one has been neglected. And um, does it look bad to you out there? Okay, it's a little over wilted. And uh, Yvonne sought to resuscitate some of these. There was one that looked a lot worse than this one. But no one grow- this is a false teacher, right? They're not growing. They're wilting. They're dying away. Instead of growing in their faith, instead of seeing God's evidence work itself in their lives, rather they turn to wickedness. And let me end up with one final question. How can we guard ourselves against heading to a life like this? Well, look over chapter 3. This is where Second Peter ends. This is really the conclusion of everything. This is how you pull Second Peter 2 in, how you protect yourself against false teachers. It says, verse 17, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. He says, guard yourself. Be on the guard. Be like the sentry who is taking watch. Don't just drift into the church, mind disengaged. Come with your mind ready. See and understand what's there. Grow in Christ. Read the Bible. Know. Match it up. See how things are going. And then, verse 18, he says, rather than being carried away by the error of unprincipled men, what should you do? You should grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. We need to to grow in Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. Grow in His grace that sees His work working in you, flushing itself out in a strong, vibrant, healthy plant, not a weak, feeble, dying plant like this false teacher. Alright, so 13 verses. We got through it. They didn't grow. Let's avoid men such as these. So let's pray. Lord, I thank You for the, the grace to get through these verses. I, I pray that You would give us this day a holy hatred for sin. As we see these tendencies in our lives, certainly they are there. Certainly there's extent where we despise authority. We don't, we don't like being told <clears throat> what to do. And as the proverb speaks about the one who receives rebuke is wise, but the one who hates rebuke is stupid. Proverbs 12.1 Well, I pray as we see our own selves despising authority, soften our hearts so that we love authority and submit to it and delight it. Lord, I think also about how we can indulge the flesh. How easy is it for us to drift in our thoughts and to pursue sensual pleasures? I pray You'd help us God, that might not be a characteristic of us at Rock Valley Bible Church. Help us by Your grace. I pray, Lord, that You might protect us from going astray. We have the right way set before us. Every week, the right way is set before us. As Your Word comes forth upon us, we see it. Help us so that we don't go astray, choosing a wrong way instead. Help us, O Lord, not to follow empty talkers. How many there are out there who we hear of what they say, perhaps on the radio, perhaps on the television, but we have no idea what's going on in their life. 
God, help us to follow those who we see genuine godliness come out of their lives. God, protect us so that we aren't people who are worse than before. Think even of the admonition of Hebrews 6 that those who have become partakers of the Holy Spirit and tasted the good Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then fallen away. God, there's no repentance for them. It's worse being in a state of no repentance than in a state where repentance is there. And we can repent. We are here. And so I pray You'd help us repent. Help us repent from our sins. Cause us to trust in Jesus. He's our hope and He's our joy. He's the only place that we can find rescue and help from these things. So help us, I pray, Lord, to so live for Your glory and cherish the cross of Christ and boast only in Him. We trust You and love You in Jesus' name. Amen. Great. You are dismissed. Have a great Lord's Day.